So again, these individual words, they're packed 
full knowledge means? Anybody got a, a definition of full knowledge? Anybody tell me what made you think full knowledge is? Know something before it happens. It sounds simple, doesn't it? Okay. So what about that? You did that without even reading the description on the board. <laughs> to know something beforehand, to foresee an event, for example. One of the attributes of God is omniscience. Omniscience. That he knows all things, past, present and future. He knows all things. Okay, there is nothing, I think we've established that over the weeks. I mean, if you read through your Bibles, you'll see it as well. He, he knows perfectly all that's happened, all that is right now, all that will come to, come to pass, and all the contingencies, everything that could come to pass in different circumstances and situations. There's no way that God gets caught out. And so, if we, you know, the, these basic attributes of God, Omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. Meaning, all-knowing, omniscience, omnipotence, all-powerful, omnipotence, yes, and omnipresent, omnipresent, yeah, means in all places, at all time, all the time. There's nowhere where he is not, because he would not exist. Not only does he but not only did he create all things, but he also sustains all things. There's a, there's a scientific investigation going on at the moment that launched a rocket into space. Did you see that on the news yesterday? And one of the investigations they're going to be carrying out is about dark matter. And not just dark matter, they're talking about, the, the, they're actually describing it as the glue that holds the universe together. I want to suggest that the glue that holds the universe together is God. I'm not sure whether they'll encounter him in their rocket, but uh, there you go. All right. Well, they do. It's all over, isn't it? It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's all over. That's right. Yes, that's how they do. Yeah. But if you're interested, you can look into the star in the sky, and you can see God's signature all over it. And another can look and just wonder where all that, where all that come from. Can't, can't even entertain the idea of the being a God. But there you go. So, for us, to foreknow is to know something beforehand or to first foresee an event. It seems self-explanatory. However, you wouldn't believe what certain theologians and, 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 and scholars debate the meaning of foreknowledge. Okay? There are many skilled scholars who would argue that to foreknow is not just to foreknow but to actually forelove. And they've got we don't have time to take that with those arguments tonight but they've got they've got some interesting arguments around that, okay? So it doesn't just mean to foreknow but to actually bestow beforehand his love upon God's love upon his elect. We'll talk about that in a minute. Secondly, the second difficult word tonight is predestined. Without reading the description, any ideas? Predestined or predestinated? Sometimes you see it in the scriptures. That's interesting. It's the, it's the opposite of predetermination. Okay, it's the opposite of predetermination. But you're saying our, our future is already mapped out. 
children are offered to you. It's talking about the predestined plan for the believer, okay, is to be conformed to the image of the Son. Think about it. Michelle made an interesting and important point. Predestination is not the same as predetermination. The difficulty if we start to think like you said, Mark, I know what you're saying, but are we then saying, are we then being fatalistic? Yeah. You understand? If the future's mapped out, including all of your decisions are predetermined for you, then do you, is there any sense in which you have any kind of free will? You know what I mean? So we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. Because if we're not careful, we could interpret predestination as fatalism, predetermination. Everything's determined. You're just basically just walking out of the arms foreordained for you. Okay? That's more, I think, to do with Greek philosophy than it is to do with um, Christian theology. So, so what we mean about yes, we already know the plan for us. Yeah. We don't know it, but God does, and we know that He knows the end. Yes, He knows it absolutely. He, yeah. he can predestinate to, to predetermine the destiny. Do you understand? Because of His knowledge of what you're saying, yeah. or what you just said. Because obviously, to know something is going to happen beforehand doesn't mean that He's making that happen. To know that you're going to take a choice, you can make a choice, doesn't mean to say that he's making that, that choice. You understand? Alright, so we're going, to, we're going to dwell on these two words for a, a little bit more. But, I just want, want you to talk about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Maybe someone could read that for me. Maybe not so much. 
John Calvin, anybody not heard of him before? Okay. A couple of you that never heard of him. Uh, Calvinism. Calvinism, have you ever heard of him? Talk about Calvinism. Alright, so Calvinism is something that you're going to come across in the church, whether you like it or not. Alright, it may not be labelled, it may not even be identified as Calvinism, but you're going to encounter this kind of thinking in the, in the Protestant church at some point in your life, in your Christian life. You're going to talk to believers from maybe other churches and other denominations that have what we call Calvinistic theology. Alright? Now, First, who was John Calvin? John Calvin was a second generation reformer, Protestant reformer. He was a Frenchman. Bless the Lord for Frenchman. He was a Frenchman, okay? But he was based mostly in Geneva, okay, in Switzerland. And so, you, you, this guy was an absolute genius, to be honest with you. He was a genius. His understanding and his commentaries and his understanding and grasp of, of Greek and Hebrew and his, his, uh, his understanding of the texts, his explanations of biblical texts, second to none. He was, he was brilliant. He was a brilliant thinker. Um, the draws is that he, he wrote a book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is a really, really important book, where he basically just explains theologically the Christian faith. Alright? Again, it was brilliant. There's no way I could have written something like that, me personally. This guy was, was exceptional. So, he, or his theology, really, although he explained it in this book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, it wasn't until later on, when, when you had um, his followers, who we would refer to as Calvinists, Right, they actually systematized, put together his, his system of theology, and it's called TULIP, it's the acronym there, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, TULIP. Well, anyway, that's brilliant. <laughs> you know, because a lot of these, a lot of the debates, the theological debates, took place in Holland. Ironically. All right. So, what did he understand? What was his framework? For interpreting, especially the doctrine of salvation, how a person is saved, right? Because that was what a lot of the, the discussions were about in the Protestant Reformation. Okay, don't forget you got Martin Luther, you remember Martin Luther in the beginning that really kicked off the, the he didn't, it wasn't actually him who came before, but he, he really was the main figure in it. Um, there were others, Jan Huss and so on, Wycliffe. But he, he began to challenge some of the thinking of the Roman Catholic Church around salvation. Even, you know that he challenged the 95, posted a 95 thesis on the, the Cathedral of Wittenberg to challenge some of the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. He himself was a monk, Catholic monk, all right? didn't want to begin the Protestant Reformation as such, wanted to reform the Roman Catholic Church, but then he got into trouble for that. Anyway, the Reformation continued. It's really interesting if you read into it, okay? The European Reformation was a reformation in the UK as well. Um, if you read around King Henry VIII, all of that that was going on, all of this was going on at the same time in Europe. Anyway, the, the, his theology was systematized with this acronym, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Right, 
So, so let's just think about that for a moment. So when, when he was thinking about predestination and words like foreknowledge and words like election or being chosen, he would, he would interpret those kinds of words through this framework. So firstly, total depravity. What did he mean by total depravity? He meant that every single human being, because of the fall, was totally depraved. Okay, that doesn't mean that he's evil to the core, as bad as he possibly could be, but in every, in all of his faculties, sin has affected him to the point where he can do nothing of any value for God. He can't choose God, his free will has been basically obliterated, alright, because he's in absolute bondage, the bondage of the world because of sin. So he's totally depraved. So just think about it for a moment. So, so we're walking around, and then practically agree with this and say that, you know, we're walking dead men. We're dead in sins. When, when they read Ephesians 2 and they say we were dead, we were dead in sins and trespasses. Yeah? They understand that literally we are walking around with spiritual corpses. That there's no connection whatsoever. We've got no desire whatsoever. We're in total bondage. Earth's a sin, okay? So, so, so we cannot do anything to respond to God. We need God to do everything at once. Alright? That's totally different, more or less. That leads to the second point unconditional election. Therefore, when we we're just as we read about election there and being chosen or elect, before the foundation of the world, God, in his omniscience, knowing everyone that would ever live, he chose and determined or, or he elected unconditionally a certain amount of individuals, people, okay, to be saved. And others to be overlooked, to be to be damned in the world. That is what they call double predestination. Some some of those believe that God did predestine some to be saved and some to be damned. Some of them don't go that far and they just say, well, God just predestined, everybody was going to be damned, but God just predestined some to be saved. Alright? But it has nothing to do with anything on your part as a human being. It's totally down to God. God simply chooses, based on his own sovereign choice, certain individuals who he will save. He'll give the, 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 the capacity to save, and he will save them completely and utterly, and others that will be damned. Feeling nervous yet? <laughs> do you know what we've heard of? Well, he did, Mom, but this is, this is about interpreting the Bible. Alright? So, like I said to you, when you read words like predestination, you read them one way. Mm -hmm. Calvinists will, will understand it differently. Right? Anyway, just for you to think, just because I know what you're thinking, you think, well, that's not fair. Are you not thinking that? That doesn't fair, that doesn't sound fair. But, but from their perspective, they would say, well, if God was fair, if he was just and fair, he'd leave everybody to suffer and to be damned. Because we chose sin. But out of his mercy, he chose some to be saved. Can you see it from that perspective? You can, but you don't feel right to that, do you? <laughs> Alright, so, anyway. So, everybody's with me so far. So, God chose, before the foundation of the world, a specific group of individuals... There's going to be millions of them to be saved and others to be damned, regardless of any, anything within themselves, right? Simply, it all depends on God. The next one is limited atonement. What does that mean? 
So when Jesus went to the cross to die on the cross, he didn't die for every single human being. Because how could he die for people that could be eventually lost? He died for this specific group of people that he's determined to save before the foundation of the world. So the atonement is limited in that sense. Is everybody with me? Alright? Okay. So, the next step, irresistible grace. So therefore, if you are being elected by God before the foundation of the world, then you will be irresistibly drawn to him. Jesus said, didn't he? No, he comes to me unless the Father draws him. So that drawing is irresistible. Okay? And what they actually say is they say that you are born again before you believe. So you're regenerated. God, God infuses this new life into you, and faith is a gift from him. Alright? And he only gives it to those who are elected beforehand, before the foundation of the world. Alright? Irresistible grace. You can't resist it. If you've been chosen, you'll be drawn to God. There's no resisting it. Which leads us to the final point, perseverance of the saints. If your salvation has nothing to do with you, and nothing to do with your choice or anything, you've been chosen to be saved, then you'll persevere until the end. There's nothing that's going to take you out of the way. You can't lose your salvation, so to speak. You can't forfeit your salvation or anything. You were chosen. Nothing to do with you, and that's it. That, in a roundabout way, right, is Calvinistic theology. What John Calvin understood and what his, what his uh, followers taught about how an individual is saved, but how they interpret election and predestination. Some of the language we're going to deal with in Romans 9 seems, at face value, to back those ideas up. In fact, I'd say to you, if you actually sit with any Calvinist, and there are Calvinists today, Oh, there are many. There were more in those days. In fact, people of opposing views were in the minority during the Protestant Reformation. But just think, I mean, that we could spend all night talking about this. Think about it was a completely different uh, society, culture, and so on, you know, that in these, these places were very monarchical. So what the king said, that was it. You understand? So just think about how that would affect. Uh, the theologian, the scholars reading the scriptures, and have no issue with Rome. This, this has been, he's been elected to salvation. He hasn't. What's the foremost problem? Alright, so this is John Cowan. So like I said, so I'm showing you these, not to throw you into turmoil, but because you need to be aware there are people in the church. These are brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters are but friends of Calvinists, uh, uh, pastors in, in Brazil, Calvinists. I've got great respect for, but I just can't see what they see in the text. I just don't see it. I don't see it. But okay. So you'll be happy to know if I could find my my little thing, whatever I'm done with it, you'll be happy to know there is an alternative. There is an alternative. Ooh. Okay. Jacob Arminius is the English translation of his name. So he lived from around 1560 to 1609. Okay? He was an extraordinary man as well. He was, if I'm not wrong, he was a professor of theology in the University of Amsterdam. And uh, <coughs> he 
originally was a Calvinist. He agreed with Calvinism. But apparently, he was preparing himself to adjudicate a, um, a debate that was going to go on in the University of Amsterdam, if I'm not wrong. Uh, and he was preparing to defend Calvinism. And actually, in his studies, but as he was preparing, he realized that some of his convictions were changing. Okay? But apparently, he was, he, was, he was a brilliant theologian, but also he was more pastoral. He was more pastoral. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? Because theologian can be very dry and, and, and very, very, very objective. Do you understand? Text. That's right. The text. What the text and the Greek, the Hebrew. Whilst he was, he was a theologian. He, he, he looked, you know, he, was, he cared about the text and cared about the Greek and the Hebrew and so on. He got a pastoral heart. He got a heart for people. Okay, which I think is, is important. Anyway, what did he teach? Again, it wasn't necessarily him that organised his thinking. It was his followers. They were called the Remonstrants. Those who were protesting against the idea of Calvinism. Okay? Some Calvin's ideas. Which, by the way, they had been accepted as the norm for the time. Okay? So, like I said to you, if you didn't agree with John Calvin in those days, you were in the minority. And probably in a very dangerous position as well. Okay, so human ability. Where we talk about total depravity, here we talk about human ability. Now, I didn't mean to say that Jacob Arminius didn't believe in the depravity of humans, alright? He too believed that sin has affected man in all his faculties, in all the ways it can. We're not as bad as we possibly could be, but we're bad. It's human beings, alright? Sin has tainted us in many ways. However, he would argue that that, did, that does not negate our ability to make free will choices because of what they call God's prevenient grace. God's prevenient grace. What does that mean? That God has given enough grace to every human being to be able to respond to the gospel. Alright? So, so notice that because very often the Calvinists will argue, oh, so what you're saying is you can save yourself, you can just make a choice. And the, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible talks about the importance of grace. We are saved by grace through faith. Yeah? It's, we need grace. It needs to be, God needs to do something in order to help us to, to be saved. You understand? Not just die on the cross, I'm talking about applying the benefits of that salvation. Alright, so he would say that. So, so where, where, where he would say, we would probably say free will, he would say freed will. You understand? Free will? Oh, it's not like any human being in the streets can, can choose God. No. That, that's not Protestant Christianity. Freed will. God has given everyone the ability by his provenient grace to be able to respond to him. So, what I am not saying is that man, fallen man, in and of himself, out in the street, Joe Lodge on the street, has the ability and the capacity to, to appropriate what Jesus has done for him. You understand? You're right, Jim. You're looking a bit lost. Because you didn't say that last So, this is what these guys are not saying. Yeah. Neither one of them. They're not saying, or he, he, 
not saying that Joel blogs on the street. If he wants to, all he's got to do is exercise his free will to choose God. Very simple. He would say nobody has that ability to do, to do that because the fall, the fall has rendered us. Uh, what's the word? We can't make that kind of choice. We, we don't choose God. God chooses us. God kind of gives us what we need. Right? But what he's saying is that God has given to every human being the capacity to make that choice, to, to respond to his grace. Alright, so either way, we need God's grace. We need God's grace to be able to be saved. Alright? To be able to even to understand. And the Bible makes that clear because the Bible says the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of righteousness and justice and judgment and so on. We need the Holy Spirit to come and open our eyes because we've been blinded, if you like, by sin. You understand? Are you with me? Alright. So that's what we mean by human ability. Okay? So God enables human beings to be able to respond. All human beings. Secondly, election. He says, okay, I'll accept election. I'm coming to preach about election. But it's not, it's not unconditional. John Calvin says, you're elect because God simply chose you. Nothing to do with yourself. Nothing to do with a, with a, with a choice that you'll make one day. No, you're simply elect or you're not elect, and that's it. Well, these are some of the implications of that, that thinking, isn't it? But, but, yeah. If we had a Calvinist scholar here, I'm sure that he would put it away, put it out to you in a more convincing way than I can, because I'm playing the devil's advocate anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, so, conditional election. So he would say, well, okay, yes, I can agree with it, there's an elect group of people. I've talked about an elect group of people. But it's how you become a member of that elect group of people. I don't agree with you, John. I don't agree, it's all on God. John Calvin I'm talking about. So I'm trying to me this time. <laughs> so sorry, John Calvin. I agree there's a group of elect people. I agree that there are individuals that obviously make up that group of elect people. But where we differ is you say it's all because of what God's done before the foundation of the world. But what I think, I think that God predestines or chooses according to his foreknowledge, his foreknowledge, okay, of, of how the individual will respond to my grace in the future. Is everybody with me? So let me, let me just explain that again. Alright, so, so this is Jacob saying, I mean, he's saying again, he says, I believe that yes, there is an elect group of people. Yes, obviously these are made of individuals, but I think to become part of that elect group of people, God has predestined according to his knowledge beforehand of who will respond to his grace or not. <laughs> so that takes, it take, if you want, for me, it takes the responsibility away from God to the individual, you know, all that God is doing is he's foreknowing who will respond positively. And based on that foreknowledge, that person is part of the elect. Can I just say, and I know Liz has mentioned this to you yes. when we've been talking. Um, our friend Arthur explained, well, I say explained, he was talking, said to us once, and it's always still with me, and I think this is, you know, a bit like what you're saying. But God will send an invitation out to everybody yes. as if you're going to 
he's saying is God knows beforehand who will accept that invitation. A Calvinist will say God decided beforehand who will accept that invitation. Do you understand? The accepting is God that makes that person accept. Can you see the difference? Alright. You can see why it why, why generated so many discussions and still does today, right? Alright, so, leading on, general atonement. So, what did Armenian Armenians believe? Remember, Calvin said that when Christ died on the cross, he was actually only dying for those who had been elected before him. Because there's no, how could he die for people that would be eventually lost? That was his reason. Arminius would say, Christ died for every person. So, I often say this, I've got quoted these guys. What Christ did on the cross was sufficient for every single person that ever was, ever is, and ever will be. But it only becomes efficient when we receive by faith. Do you understand? That wasn't me, it was then by faith. It explains a bit more, right? Alright. Okay. So, then that moves on to resistible grace. So, regardless, either way, you need grace. But for John Calvin, man, if you were chosen before the foundation of the world, you're going to come, that's it, there's no resisting it. That's ridiculous. For Armenians, you say, no, there are those who can use their freed will to resist the gospel of And I think as you listen to this, you're probably finding yourself falling on the Armenian side. Okay? Falling from grace. Falling from grace. Now, this is disputed amongst Armenians. Not all Armenians believe that it's possible to fall from grace or forfeit the salvation. Okay? No Armenian worth his soul will ever tell you you can lose your salvation as if it were like a set of keys. You know, like you weren't, you weren't aware of it. What an Armenian scholar who believes, I'm actually one of those who believe that it's possible for a person, a Christian, to fall from grace. I do. Because I believe the Bible teaches it. And I believe the one thing that is, can cause a person to fall from grace is the sin of apostasy. And the reason I believe that, one, because it's in the Bible. Number two, because the Bible is full of warnings. The New Testament is full of warnings. Okay? My argument would be, well, if it's impossible for an elect person to fall from grace, why do you put warnings in the first place? But, just to be fair to the other side, they would then say, well, could be that the warnings actually are the means to, by which God keeps the person in the event. Do you understand? Yeah. So there, there are arguments on all sides, but it's, it's, not, it's not straightforward. Right? Some believe, yes, like myself, it is possible. But let me just qualify that, or clarify that, I should say. Um, so, so the sin of apostasy, again, I would say when somebody willingly and permanently walks away from Christ. Willingly and permanently. You see, very often in this argument, we have an issue. If I say, is it possible you can lose your salvation? People are like, come on. You know, it depends on us in the first place. Well, if you're Armenian, <laughs> you know, I think we need to think a bit more about that. But anyway, what if I, what if, what if I word it this way? Is it possible somebody could lose their faith? So instead of me 
saying, is it possible for a person to lose their salvation? Oh, I don't know about that. Is it possible? What about if I said, is it possible for somebody to lose their faith? It doesn't sound as severe, does it? And yet it's the same thing. Is it possible for somebody to lose their faith in the sense that, oh, I don't believe in the Bible anymore. I'm sorry, walk away and permanently stay in that state and then, and then die in that state, God forbid. Do you know, for me, it's possible. I think that it's possible. It's, we're not asking, will a person do that? Because something like that has to pass it. I could never do that, you know. It's not, will a person do it? It's whether it's possible, whether the scriptures teach that that's possible or not. Something to think about. I told you it's going to be a deep one tonight. <laughs> yeah? And just be aware that these different interpretative, yes, that's it, frameworks, they, they exist within the church today. So not everybody is reading the Bible the same way as you are necessarily. Not everybody, when you're reading, you're reading words like predestination. So it's very often we just like, we shy away from things like that, don't we? Well, I'm talking about I mean predestination. But you may not be interpreting it the same way as someone else is in another denomination. That doesn't mean to say you're not a brother or sister, it means they've got a different system of understanding God and how people are saved. Amen. Got it? Lots to think about there. I know. Lots to think about. But, Yeah. 
and he knows how you're going to respond like what you've said now. You've got a choice to fall away from him, come back through 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever, or fall away and keep coming back. Yeah. But he knows. Exactly. So, so what I always, what I understand from the scriptures, the Bible presents to us the two sides. It presents the divine side. So from God's perspective, he, of course he knows. He knows who, who, who's part of his elect. He knows who's going to make it to the end. He knows who you're all about. Okay? Again, predestined or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. He knows. Right? And the book of Job's will let because God wouldn't let the devil tempt Job if he didn't know that Job was going to do Absolutely. what he was going to do. So, yes, so, so he would agree with you. Armenians would agree with you. You're, not, you're on the side of the Armenians, by the sound of you. So, so, yeah, and again, going back to these words, the Calvinists would say, well, you know, uh, uh, God doesn't just foreknow something you're going to do. He's actually determined what you're going to do. And, and made you do it, in a, in a sense, because you couldn't do it yourself. Justified. 
these products. Okay, and then the final step of the process is glorified. We're glorified. When are we glorified? When are we glorified? When we receive our resurrected bodies to be like Him. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Experiencing glory now, there is a sense because we're being transformed from glory to glory, the Bible says. But ultimately, it's the resurrection, the glorifying body. So you can see the process and there are steps to the process. Amen. Wow, we should rain fast and fast. Yes, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. But I hope that you can see. Obviously, I tend to agree more with Arminianism. I think if you, if you sit and think things through, you do as well. But I don't want to make a mind for you. You might not agree with all the points that I've put over, but I think in general, we kind of tend to be more Armenian in our understanding. Just to Again, for who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the first firstborn among many brethren. Okay? So, what do we mean by the ship of salvation? I'll put this up here because a brilliant man, American theologian called A.W. Tozer, who's heard of A.W. Tozer, written some fantastic books, really, really good stuff. Anyway, he described, he described predestination like this. Imagine you're on a ship, okay? And the ship is, I don't know, HMS Christ. Okay, it's the ship of salvation. If you are on that ship, you need to know that that ship has a, a destination. It is predestined to arrive at the destination, you understand? At that port. So every single person on that ship, you go on the ship, you've got a certain amount of freedom on that ship, you can move around, you can go and play table tennis, you can go and dance or whatever you're going to do, moving around that ship, but you are on a journey from one port of origin to a port of destination. And the port of destination, the ship is Christ, obviously, and all those on, on, on that ship, HMS Christ, is going to, they're going to arrive at that port of destination, which is to be conformed to the image of the sun. If you're on the ship, you'll get there. Because you're predestined. The ship actually is saying you're predestined uh, um, by virtue of the fact that you're on the ship. Now whether you can jump off that ship or not is another discussion. Alright? By your free will. Who knows? Um, so when you think about that predestination, you remember the ship from now, right? The ship, HMS Christ. You're on it, don't get off it. Get to the end. Because that's where it's going. Alright, praise God. Let's just very quickly, because you can believe our hour is gone, I thought it might do. Mm -hmm. Chapter 8, verse 31. I'll read to verse 31. Okay? What then shall we say to these things? What things? All that we've talked about in this epistle so far, in this letter. 
Right? What shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring the charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created good thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow! Blessed be the Lord. Okay, remember, you get on that ship, you stay on that ship, and you're going to get to the end. You're going to reach the end. Nothing is going to stop you. Okay? Nothing externally, oh God, is going to stop you. Okay. So, thinking about this, God has transferred us from the realm of Adam's sin, we talked about that other week, and death into the realm of Christ, righteousness, and life. Yeah? We've been translated by God from the kingdom of God into the, the kingdom of his son. Nothing can stand in the way of the ultimate salvation of the believer. The believer, I emphasize, the believer. Okay, why is that? How is that? Why? Because then we go to like a courtroom scene. And in the courtroom scene, who can stand against us? Who can be against us? Why? Because it is God who justifies us. And he's quoting or alluding to there, Isaiah 50 verse 89. It's God who vindicates us. It's God who's done it. It's God who's paid the price. It is Christ who's died for us. He's the one that paid the price on the tree for us. It is Christ who rose for us. Yes. It is Christ who also intercedes for us now. Who can stand against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? We might be able to bring a charge against God's elect. But we're justified, we've been forgiven. Do you understand? The answer is by pointing to Christ. Praise God. Praise God. Again, the sort of Talks about God's everlasting love for us in Christ. Again, he wants to, he wants to encourage us, reminding us that it was God that took the initiative to do all of this. It was God who took the step to save us. He didn't have to, but he chose to because of his love for us. He says, so what's going to separate us from the love of Christ? No hardships, tribulations, trials. No overcomes. And that's what Paul lived by. You know, they could throw him in prison, they could beat him, they could stone him, they could, he could be shipwrecked, they could do all, but nothing would separate him from the love of Christ, nothing. No external pressures, trials, tribulations, nothing. No spiritual powers may interfere with that love, but we also got to remember Jude verse 21. Jude verse 21, who wants to turn there? Jude verse 21. So we can see one 
this, nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? From the love of Christ. And yet another passage, the same Holy Spirit inspired passage says, keep yourself in the love of God. And when I said to you earlier, the Bible shows the divine side, but it also shows the human side. Okay? So it's saying nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, but at the same time it says keep yourself in the love of Christ, in the love of God. John 15, verses 9 and 10. John 15, 9 and 10. Never finish that. So, you may go and have some tea because you deserve it. You burn it. 